Welcome to The Reading Room. I'm Xeni, the creator of A Writer's Lighthouse. In this podcast, we'll read selected passages from novels, short stories, poetry and more, and break down the prose to identify what makes a story memorable and impactful, and what we can learn from it as writers. We'll be looking closely at some of the most engaging and immersive narratives in literature to harness and identify the devices and methods which capture the reader. In each episode, I'll read an extract aloud before we work through a short, close reading of one or two paragraphs. We'll then finish with an exercise for you to try at home. Are you ready? Then let's begin. Welcome to episode three, writers. Today, we explore the writing style of Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. Written in 1959, this chilling gothic story takes place over a single week in rural 1950s America. It is considered one of the best literary ghost stories published in the 20th century, and to date, it has been adapted into two feature films, a televised series, and a play. In today's reading, I'm only going as far as the introduction to each of the main characters, which includes the house itself, because we'll be focusing on the narrative structure and how this sets the tone and pace for the novel overall. As you listen to the reading, I'd like you to think about how the sentences have been constructed and how these change for each of the characters. Are you ready? Then let's begin. The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson Chapter 1 No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years, and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. Dr John Montague was a doctor of philosophy. He had taken his degree in anthropology, feeling obscurely that in this field he might come closest to his true vocation, the analysis of supernatural manifestations. He was scrupulous about the use of his title because, his investigations being so utterly unscientific, he hoped to borrow an air of respectability, even scholarly authority, from his education. It had cost him a good deal, in money and pride, since he was not a begging man, to rent Hill House for three months but he expected absolutely to be compensated for his pains by the sensation following upon the publication of his definitive work on the causes and effects of psychic disturbances in a house commonly known as haunted. He had been looking for an honestly haunted house all his life. When he heard of Hill House, he had been at first doubtful, then hopeful, then indefatigable. He was not the man to let go of Hill House once he had found it. Dr Montague's intentions with regard to Hill House derived from the methods of the intrepid 19th century ghost hunters. He was going to go and live in Hill House and see what happened there. It was his intention at first to follow the example of the anonymous lady who went to stay at Ballachin House and ran a summer-long house party for sceptics and believers with croquet and ghost-watching as the outstanding attractions. But sceptics, believers and good croquet players are harder to come by today. Dr Montague was forced to engage assistants. Perhaps the leisurely ways of Victorian life lent themselves more agreeably to the devices of psychic investigation. 
or perhaps the painstaking documentation of phenomena has largely gone out as a means of determining actuality. At any rate, Dr. Montague had not only to engage assistants, but to search for them. Because he thought of himself as careful and conscientious, he spent considerable time looking for his assistants. He combed the records of the psychic societies, the back files of sensational newspapers, the reports of parapsychologists, and assembled a list of names of people who had, in one way or another, at one time or another, no matter how briefly or dubiously, been involved in abnormal events. From his list, he first eliminated the names of people who were dead, when he had then crossed off the names of those who seemed to him publicity seekers, of subnormal intelligence, or unsuitable because of a clear tendency to take the centre of the stage, he had a list of perhaps a dozen names. Each of these people then received a letter from Dr Montague extending an invitation to spend all or part of a summer at a comfortable country house, old but perfectly equipped with plumbing, electricity, central heating and clean mattresses. The purpose of their stay, the letter stated clearly, was to observe and explore the various unsavoury stories which had been circulated about the house for most of its 80 years of existence. Dr Montague's letters did not say openly that Hill House was haunted, because Dr Montague was a man of science, and until he had actually experienced a psychic manifestation in Hill House, he would not trust his luck too far. Consequently, his letters had a certain ambiguous dignity calculated to catch the imagination of a very special sort of reader. To his dozen letters, Dr Montague had four replies, the other eight or so candidates having presumably moved and left no forwarding address, or possibly having lost interest in the supernormal, or even, perhaps, never having existed at all. To the four who replied, Dr Montague wrote again, naming a specific day when the house would be officially regarded as ready for occupancy, and enclosing detailed directions for reaching it, since, as he was forced to explain, information about finding the house was extremely difficult to get, particularly from the rural community which surrounded it. On the day before he was to leave for Hill House, Dr Montague was persuaded to take into his select company a representative of family who owned the house, and a telegram arrived from one of his candidates, backing out with a clearly manufactured excuse. Another never came or wrote, perhaps because of some pressing personal problem which had intervened. The other two came. Eleanor Vance was 32 years old when she came to Hill House. The only person in the world she genuinely hated, now that her mother was dead, was her sister. She disliked her brother-in-law and her five-year-old niece, and she had no friends. This was owing largely to the eleven years she had spent caring for her invalid mother, which had left her with some proficiency as a nurse and an inability to face strong sunlight without blinking. She could not remember ever being truly happy in her adult life. Her years with her mother had been built devotedly around small guilts and small reproaches, constant weariness and unending despair. Without ever wanting to become reserved and shy, she had spent so long alone, with no one to love, that it was difficult for her to talk, even casually, to another person without self-consciousness and an awkward inability to find words. Her name had turned up on Dr Montague's list because one day, when she was 12 years old and her sister was 18, and their father had been dead for not quite a month, showers of stones had fallen on their house without any warning or any indication of purpose or reason dropping from the ceilings, rolling loudly down the walls, breaking windows and pattering maddeningly on the roof. The stones continued intermittently for three days, during which time Eleanor and her sister were less unnerved by the stones than by the neighbours and sightseers who gathered daily outside the front door, 
and by their mother's blind, hysterical insistence that all of this was due to malicious backbiting people on the block who had had it in for her ever since she came. After three days, Eleanor and her sister were removed to the house of a friend, and the stones stopped falling, nor did they ever return, although Eleanor and her sister and her mother went back to living in the house, and the feud with the entire neighbourhood was never ended. The story had been forgotten by everyone except the people Dr Montague consulted. It had certainly been forgotten by Eleanor and her sister, each of whom had supposed at the time that the other was responsible. During the whole underside of her life, ever since her first memory, Eleanor had been waiting for something like Hill House. Caring for her mother, lifting a cross old lady from her chair to her bed, setting out endless little trays of soup and oatmeal, stealing herself to the filthy laundry, Eleanor had held fast to the belief that some day something would happen. She had accepted the invitation to Hill House by return mail, although her brother-in-law had insisted upon calling a couple of people to make sure that this doctor fellow was not aiming to introduce Eleanor to savage rights not unconnected with matters Eleanor's sister deemed it improper for an unmarried young woman to know. Perhaps Eleanor's sister whispered in the privacy of the marital bedroom. Perhaps Dr Montague, if that really was his name after all, perhaps this Dr Montague used these women for some, well, experiments. You know, experiments, the way they do. Eleanor's sister dwelt richly upon experiments she had heard these doctors did. Eleanor had no such ideas, or having them, she was not afraid. Eleanor, in short, would have gone anywhere. Theodora, that was as much name as she used, her sketches were signed Theo, and on her apartment door, and the window of her shop, and her telephone listing, and her pale stationery, and the bottom of the lovely photograph of her which stood on the mantel, the name was always only Theodora. Theodora was not at all like Eleanor. Duty and conscience were for Theodora, attributes which belonged properly to Girl Scouts. Theodora's world was one of delight and soft colours. She had come onto Dr Montague's list because, going laughing into the laboratory, bringing with her a rush of floral perfume, she had somehow been able, amused and excited over her own incredible skill, to identify correctly 18 cards out of 20, 15 cards out of 20, 19 cards out of 20 held up by an assistant at a sight and hearing. The name of Theodora shone in the records of the laboratory and so came inevitably to Dr Montague's attention. Theodora had been entertained by Dr Montague's first letter and answered it out of curiosity. Perhaps the wakened knowledge in Theodora, which told her the names of symbols on cards held out of sight, urged her on her way toward Hill House, and yet fully intended to decline the invitation. Yet, perhaps a stirring, urgent sense again, when Dr Montague's confirming letter arrived, Theodora had been tempted and had somehow plunged blindly, wantonly into a violent quarrel with the friend with whom she shared an apartment. Things were said on both sides which only time could eradicate. Theodora had deliberately and heartlessly smashed the lovely little figurine her friend had carved of her, and her friend had cruelly ripped to shreds the volume of Alfred de Musset, which had been a birthday present from Theodora, taking particular pains with the page which bore Theodora's loving, teasing inscription. These acts were of course unforgettable, and before they could laugh over them together, time would have to go by. Theodora had written that night, accepting Dr Montague's invitation, and departed in cold silence the next day. Luke Sanderson was a liar. He was also a thief. His aunt, who was the owner of Hill House, was fond of pointing out that her nephew had the best education, best clothes, the best taste, and the worst companions of anyone she had ever known. 
she would have leapt at any chance to put him safely away for a few weeks. The family lawyer was prevailed upon to persuade Dr. Montague that the house could on no account be rented to him for his purposes without the confining presence of a member of the family during his stay. And perhaps at their first meeting, the doctor perceived in Luke a kind of strength, or cat-like instinct for self-preservation, which made him almost as anxious as Mrs. Sanderson to have Luke with him in the house. At any rate, Luke was amused, his aunt grateful, and Dr. Montague more than satisfied. Mrs. Sanderson told the family lawyer that at any rate, there was really nothing in the house Luke could steal. The old silver there was of some value, she told the lawyer, but it represented an almost insuperable difficulty for Luke. It required energy to steal it and transform it into money. Mrs. Sanderson did Luke an injustice. Luke was not at all likely to make off with the family silver, or Dr. Montague's watch, or Theodora's bracelet. His dishonesty was largely confined to taking petty cash from his aunt's pocketbook and cheating at cards. He was also apt to sell the watches and cigarette cases given him fondly and with pretty blushes by his aunt's friends. Someday Luke would inherit Hill House, but he had never thought to finding himself living in it. There are a number of paths we could have taken today for our close reading. The opening paragraph alone could serve as the focus for the episode. As I read and reread it, I found something new each time. Today, we'll look at how the sentences have been constructed to release a steady flow of both curiosity and fear in the reader. We'll also look again at some character tags and their function in the story. As you read the story, you can feel a sense that everyone is being watched, observed, assessed, like a breeze passing ever so slightly down your spine. How? The story is told in a third-person, omniscient narrative, that is, all-seeing and all-knowing. While the narration is outside of any character, the narrator can access the consciousness of more than one character and relay this to the reader. The opening line presents us with a fact, that no living organism could continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. And the text reads a scientific certainty, one that has been tried and tested over time. This also sets the themes of science and the supernatural, the rational and the irrational that runs through the novel via Dr. Montague and Eleanor. As we progress the reading, we learn that the house has maintained its hold for almost a hundred years and will continue to do so, irrespective of who comes visiting. We're already starting to feel the weighted impressions of the house. Let's look at the sentences again. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years and might stand for 80 more. Jackson has presented the structure of the house as a long-standing, firm and unmoving entity. That the house is not sane is matter-of-fact and blunt, and this is unsettling. Hill House is not only the name of the estate, but the presence that continues to reside there. The house retains darkness within itself, contains it. While reading aloud, I could fully appreciate the pace of the narrative and how this is controlled through punctuation, the periods or full stops, the commas, the semicolons. The descriptive language that follows and use of adverbs juxtapose the sense of order with the sense of fear. Walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm and doors were sensibly shut. Think about a house that is presented as civilised, yet is not sane. When I first read sensibly, I thought that this was to signify that the house was in order. On completing the reading, I realised that it also meant that there is good sense in keeping the doors closed. 
Whatever walked there walked alone. God, these five words never fail to send a chill through me. There is a presence that alludes to the supernatural and it is isolated. The house has agency, but is not explicitly human. The implication of whatever unsettles the reader and the closing word alone carries the weight of finality. The intent here is to unsettle the reader and to stir a fear within them. Read or listen to the passage again, letting the words and punctuation really sink in. In the paragraphs that follow, Jackson quickly and effortlessly establishes her key characters. First, we meet the house and the doctor, then our three volunteers, Eleanor, Theodora and Luke. Only the house knows what truly lies ahead for them, because it has been here before. Within a few short paragraphs, we are presented with the hopes, ambitions and goals of Dr John Montague, the leader of the expedition to Hill House and the catalyst for this story. For Dr Montague, not John, Hill House is the opportunity he has been searching for to redeem his career and legitimise years of research in an honestly haunted house, and he is not going to let it pass. The repetition of John's title as doctor enhances his sense of authority and the air of respectability that he so desperately clings to and borrows from his education. Through his meticulous process of elimination for suitable volunteers, Dr Montague approaches each step of bringing his plans to fruition with a calculated hopefulness that reads almost as mania. The doctor is going to Hill House with something to prove. For me, this sets me on alert that he is, in fact, underprepared for what awaits him. We then have Eleanor Vance, the sheltered and introverted protagonist who appears to have the strongest connection to Hill House and who is also the most vulnerable. Eleanor is desperate to leave her current life and her overbearing sister behind after the death of her mother, so much so that she throws caution to the wind in her desire to become truly independent and to discover herself by responding to the doctor's invitation. Like the doctor, we are provided greater detail into this character's backstory with the account of her feelings towards her family members and her paranormal experience. This, for me, is deliberately done. With more detail to work with, you become invested in those characters without realising it. After Eleanor, we have the modern, confident, independent Theodora, identified as Theo, and we are not given her last name. Theo sketches and has a shop and a roommate and considers the supernatural humorous. She is presented as the polar opposite to Eleanor, shedding light on everything she has that Eleanor doesn't, and this will prove telling in later chapters. Our group of volunteers ends with Luke, who is presented as a liar, a thief and a charmer who stands to inherit Hill House. He is brought into the group at the request of his aunt to keep him out of trouble, and yet he somehow still manages to cause it, again as later chapters will reveal. Notice how each character has his or her own character traits, motivations and vocabulary assigned to them. Each character will react to Hill House in his or her own way as the story continues. As a reader, you will make your own assumptions against each character. As a writer, you may recognise that the wheels have been set in motion for the volunteer who will be contained within the darkness of the house. If you'd be interested in exploring this chapter, or the novel as a whole in more detail, just let me know. For today's exercise, if you are already working on your own story, revisit a paragraph or chapter and take a fresh look at how you punctuate your sentences. This might seem like a strange task for me to set you, but having listened to the pace of the story, I feel like this is an important exercise for writers to take on.
If, however, you're confident in the pace of your narrative, you could try this exercise instead. Place yourself within the novel as a last-minute addition to the group of volunteers and write an introduction for your character into the story. End the sequence at your arrival to Hill House and your character's first impression on seeing it. Consider preparing the following before you start writing. What is your character backstory and how would this have gotten you onto the doctor's radar as a potential volunteer? What motivates you to accept the call to action? Thank you for joining me this week. If you haven't already, I hope you'll follow or subscribe to the podcast in your favourite podcast app. We've covered a lot in today's episode, so if you'd like to review the full show notes, including today's exercise, head to awriterslighthouse.com forward slash podcast and search by book title. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you know fellow writers who would find these episodes helpful, an Apple podcast review or recommendation would be greatly appreciated to expand our writing community. It's great that you're here on this journey with me in today's episode of the Reading Room podcast. Until next time, keep reading and writing with your eyes to the horizon.